again for joining me here on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela, and in this episode, we're going to continue our look at the Reformed Doctrines of Grace, better known as Calvinism. Before we do that, I'd like to turn your attention and just remind you to check out Christus Victor Network. That's www.christusvictornetwork.com for some other great podcast content. I'd also like to remind you that if you enjoyed this show and would like to partner with us here, please sign up to be a sponsor with us through the Podbean link on the blog or by finding the Freed Thinker uh, podcast on Patreon.com. A gift of any amount would really be greatly appreciated and is going to go directly towards the improvement of the quality of these episodes. Now, with that, let's dive right in to where we left off in the Doctrines of Grace by turning our attention to limited atonement. Enjoy the show. at the doctrines of grace, also known as Calvinism. And one of the ways I've described it, and I'm going to keep describing it, is by the concept of Russian nesting dolls. Now, Russian nesting dolls uh, are those cute little dolls that you keep opening up halfway through, and there's another one inside, and you open that halfway, and there's another one inside. And that's an apt illustration because all of these doctrines build on each other. Now, I sometimes get some flack for some people at this point. Because I've gone on record and, and in print, and I've, I've said basically that I don't think there's such a thing as a partial Calvinist or a four-point Calvinist or a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist or anything like that. At that point, you're usually either an Arminian or you just don't understand Calvinism or Arminianism or Molinism. There's no really halfway point. That's because each one of these doctrines is built on the other one. If once once you open the rest nesting doll, once you once you take off the first layer, the rest of these logically follow. And I think I'm going to continue to show that as we go through. Another problem is that so many times people talk about Calvinism and they mix up all the doctrines. So when you're talking about election, they'll start talking about free will and sovereignty which kind of comes into play, but is usually most aptly uh, discussed either under total depravity or under irresistible grace. They're trying to shoehorn concepts either too early or when they're not fully developed. Another problem is, is that really the concept of the will, whether you're a compatibilist, whether you're a libertarian freedom, whether you're a determinist, all of these types of concepts, if we're really honest with ourselves at the end of the day, aren't really biblical concepts. And by that, I don't mean that they're false or that they're contrary to scripture or, or anything like that. I think some of them are. 
But what I mean is that they're not expressly stated in Scripture. So what we do is we take these philosophical concepts of, say, libertarian freedom, and then we import that back into our understanding of passages on the atonement, for example. Now, I think a much better way to come at these is to say, well, well, what's clearly taught in Scripture? And let's work the other direction. This is, this is in hermeneutics, the analogy of faith, or the rule of faith. We take what is clear and explicit in Scripture and use that to interpret the less clear. And I think when we're talking about Calvinism, that really helps because it, it appears to me that the scriptural teaching on the atonement and what was accomplished on the cross is extremely clear, whereas the nature of human will and how it relates to divine sovereignty is not so clear. So we should really flip the script and we should interpret and come to our, our, our doctrine, our theology of the will through our understanding of the atonement. And I think that that's a much more helpful way, and it doesn't kind of get us in that morass uh, and that, 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 that quicksand of trying to figure out human freedom and, and, and human responsibility as compared to, to divine sovereignty. Last time, we looked at what the atonement was, what it accomplished. And we saw that the, the atonement, when Christ died on the cross, actually accomplished its work. It accomplished what he came to do. The, remember we said that the extent of the atonement should be understood in light of the intent of the atonement. And we saw that the intent of the atonement was to accomplish propitiation, to accomplish redemption, to accomplish reconciliation, to accomplish atonement, to accomplish all of these, the, all of these other things, and that Christ actually did accomplish them. Now we're going to get to the question, well, well, if he accomplished them, what did he accomplish them for? So the fundamental question of this doctrine uh, of limited atonement, which, which uh, in one aspect, limited atonement is a good title because it says the extent of the atonement is limited. Some people prefer to call this the doctrine of particular redemption. That is that, that God has, has redeemed for himself a particular people. Whichever one you want, they're just talking about two sides of the same coin. Now, the fundamental question of this doctrine seeks to address whether Christ died to make the atonement for all of humanity or if he died to atone for the elect alone. In this episode, we're going to be attempting to probe some of the decrees of God which he made before creation began, and thus we have to begin by being aware that not all of our questions are going to be answered. Let's also keep in mind that the two doctrines of Calvinism that we've already studied previously, the first one being total depravity. Remember, total depravity is that Russian nesting doll, the outer layer. It sets the stage, right? We know that we're not just metaphorically dead in our sins, but we're actually and totally dead in our sins in regard to God and his righteousness. We can't not make ourselves innocent in God's court any more than we could in a human court if we're actually guilty. This declaration of innocence can only come from the judge of those courts who has the authority to do so. We cannot even expect that any amount of begging before the gavel will sway the heart of the judge. This is what we mean when we say that we cannot gain our own salvation, nor can we till the soil, so to speak, to make the conditions required for salvation. Now, what follows from that? We're not able to, to redeem ourselves. We're not able to affect our own salvation. We're dead in our sins. We are dry bones. We cannot even willingly repent and believe. It takes a supernatural act of God. So, so what's needed? Well, first, God has to choose us. 
Right? We can't choose God, so God has to choose us. Due to our spiritual inability, salvation can only come through and by an act of God. God chose us before the foundation of the world, not due to anything in us or any unforeseen faith, or, or f- because really uh, there wouldn't be any there wouldn't be any faith for God to see if He didn't already elect and regenerate me. Uh, but it's based solely on the secret will and good pleasure of God. We know that all whom God has elected, he will also justify by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's here that we come to the doctrine at hand. Does the blood of Christ redeem the whole world, or does he redeem the elect alone? In other words, and admittedly more pointed words, did Jesus die to make salvation possible for all men, or to make salvation actual for the elect? So let's begin, as usual, with some definitions of the doctrine itself. How have some people defined this? Well, in the Westminster Confessions, chapter 3, uh, it says, quote, Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Uh, the Canons of Dort, Part 2, Article 8, says, quote, For it was entirely the free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones, in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. End quote. Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology on page 384 writes, quote, Christ died for the purpose of saving the elect and the elect only. He died for the purpose of saving only those whom he actually applies the benefits of his redemptive work. End quote. Now, once again, due to the controversial nature and the history of division of this doctrine, I'm going to attempt to a degree to limit the discussion to the explicit passages in Scripture much more than the brute theology of it. So while some systematic theology has to be employed, we can't really escape it to draw some conclusions between the passages, the discussion will primarily be biblical support rather than pure systematics. We're also going to begin with a biblical basis for the doctrine and then move into some of the theological necessities of it. So how about we look at some of these passages? Remember, uh, because there's so many passages, I'm going to be flipping back and forth in my Bible. So if you hear some pages ruffling uh, or a little bit more time in between, I'm going to try to edit some of that out. But please uh, be patient with me on some of those. The first passage we're going to look at is John chapter 10. John chapter 10 um, verses, uh, 13, uh, and 15. Now this is put in the parable of the good shepherd, right? Jesus tells, uh, the parable of the good shepherd and, and this is, he, he's giving his interpretation, right? So I'm going to back up. I'll read uh, 11 through 15. Now I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and my own know me. 
even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, we notice that in this passage, Christ lays his life down for all sheep, all the sheep of the world. How about all the sheep that will respond when he says, do you want to be my sheep? No. He says he lays down his life for his sheep. In fact, he compares his own personal relationship with the Father to his relationship with the sheep. Now, does the Father have a strong relationship with the Son because the Father wooed the Son? Because the Father didn't really didn't really pick the Son specifically, but you know, all, all the people he offered and the Son was just the one who responded. No. It's a particular relationship with a particular individual. It's not universal. Notice that even going into verse 16, which I'll read in a second, that Jesus has sheep that are not of the fold of Israel, but he still doesn't make a universal statement concerning all sheep. Look in verse 16. We looked at this last time. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, speaking of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with the shepherd. Right. This is this is where we're going to get into all the all the world and all the remember the good news of the gospel is that it's not just Israel that it breaks forth to all nations all tribes all tongues all people so when it talks about the world it's talking about people in general nations tribes there's redeemed from all different ethnicities it's no longer an ethnic requirement to come into Israel. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Right, who does he lay down his life for? Who does he have the authority to pick it up again? Who, who He gives it on his own, of his own initiative. Who is he giving it for? His sheep. Let's look again at Acts 20. Now, now you'll notice I'm, I'm not looking at all these passages that have to do with free will. You know, I'm not looking at Acts 2 where it talks about, where it shows examples of, of people choosing and people having will and all this kind of stuff because I think it mires it down. Let's, we don't have, the Bible isn't expressly clear on the philosophical construct of the human will, but it does have clear passages on the atonement and we should read it the other way around. We shouldn't import ambiguous passages about the nature of the will into passages about the atonement and into how God applies the atonement, but we should look at it the other way around. It's clear on what the atonement is. Acts 20, 28 says, this is in Paul's farewell speech to the leaders at Ephesus. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for your flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Here we see again that this is one flock, the church. God obtained it for himself by the blood of Christ on the cross. The overseers are to watch over the church. They're not to... They're not to watch over every single person in the entire city of Ephesus, right? They're to watch over the church because the people of the church have been redeemed. God's propitious towards them. Christ accomplished propitiation. He's reconciled them. Right? All that stuff we talked about last time for the church. Let's look again at Romans chapter 5. We, we spent a little bit of time in here last time. Let's look at that again. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. 
say, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. Not the whole world died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, right? Because his blood justified us. It accomplished justification. It accomplished propitiation. We are justified by his blood on the cross. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Propitiation. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. When were we reconciled? Through the death of his son on the cross. While we were enemies. While we were objects of wrath. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Notice that it's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Here, as he does throughout Romans, Paul uses the first person plural to be inclusive of all believers only and not the whole world. For for if these us's and these we's, these, these, these first plural, plural, plural pronouns meant the entire human race, every single person, then verse 10 would utterly be obscured in the light of the rest of the New Testament teaching. Imagine if verse 10 these plural pronouns, remember, the, the, the us is the same. He's carrying it through the us uh, while we were still, while, you know, uh, sorry. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Who did he die for? Us. Verse 10, for if we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God th- uh, through the death of his son so much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life the same group same we same us if you take if you get rid of limited atonement universalism is inescapable It's clear that the connection between verses 8, 9, and 10 is the justification that's found in verse 9. Verse 9 is the transition point. Thus, when Christ died for us while we were still sinners and enemies, he necessarily gave us redemption, which can do nothing else but bring us salvation. In other words, the logic of the passage is that whoever Christ died for will be saved. Yet considering we have a doctrine of reprobation, rejection, and finally hell, verse 10 would be completely contrary to all scripture if we posited that Christ died for all of humanity and not just the elect in verse 9. In this case, we only have two options. Either Christ did not die to atone for all people and some are condemned to hell, or else all are saved, and the passages in hell should be deleted from our Bibles. Those are the only two options. If you're going to read these consistently, those are the only two options. Let's look again at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. We looked at this last time. Here he's giving the recommendation for for husbands and wives. In verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as. 
Here we're told that husbands are to love their wives in the same exact way, in the same analogous type that Christ loved the church, expressed with his death on the cross for her. Again, the logic of this analogy Right? We can't make it too symbolic, otherwise the logic of the analogy breaks down. The logic of the analogy requires a limited reading. For if Christ gave himself up for all humanity, but then simply bound himself to those who believed, Paul would actually be mandating polygamy. Husbands should then pursue all women that they can offer to, and they, they should offer proposals and wed all the ones who accept his offer. For if Christ's death was not exclusive, but was just an offer of exclusivity, then neither ought to be the husbands. The logic of Paul is that the husband should love their wife exclusively and sacrificially in the same way that Christ loved and died exclusively and sacrificially for the church and the church alone. If you have any questions about these passages, I again recommend going back to some of these things that we looked at last time. Right? We spent a lot of time looking at the biblical case for what the atonement was for. We looked at Christ being the priest. What does the priest do? He intercedes. But who does the priest offer sacrifices for? The people that he represents. Not the whole world, the people that he represents. Now, John Owen gives a really famous uh, formulation. He gives, he gives kind of a logical argument to support limited atonement. Now, we're going we're gonna to work our th way through this, but I think the logic of this is, is pretty airtight, and I haven't really heard a counterexample to this. This is going to be a direct attack for people who are trying to be um, hold to some type of libertarian freedom um, and, and ignoring the passages on the atonement. Well, maybe not ignoring, but handling them uh, inconsistently. John Owen gives this example. He gives a couple of premises that we're going to work our way through. He says, The father imposed his wrath due unto, and the son underwent punishment for either A, all the sins of all men, B, all the sins of some men, or C, some of the sins of of all men. Right? So let's look at you either have all the sins of all men, all the sins of some men, or some of the sins of all men. In which case it may be said, if the last is true, that it's some of the sins of all men, then all men still have some sins to answer for, and so none are saved. Right? You have you have universal reprobation. Because we all have sins to account for. We only got some of our sins atoned for. If the second is true, that all the sins of some men are what Christ died for, then Christ, in their stead, suffered for all of the sins of all of the elect in the world. And that is, as John Owen says, the truth. That's the biblical doctrine. Right? That's limited atonement. He died for all of the sins of some men, the elect. Men and women, sorry. John Owen was writing you know, in a different time. <laughs> but if it's the first case... That he died for all of the sins of all men, right? This, this is Arminianism. This is Molinism. He died for all of the sins of all men. Why are not all men free from the punishment due under their sins? 
right? So if he died for all the sins, why are not all men saved, right? If you're not going to be a universalist, why do some people go to hell? Right? And he, and he imagined an answer. Well, you you answer, he says, because of unbelief. Right? How many times do we hear that before? Well, God will God offer salvation to all, but it's only for you know if those who believe. If they don't believe, they don't ex- they don't accept the present. Right? They're denying the gift, so they're condemned. Well, John Owen asks a really pointed question. He says, "I ask then, is this unbelief a sin, or is it not? Is it a sin to have unbelief to reject?" The gospel. If it is a sin, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto that, or he didn't, right? Because remember, the position is he died for all sins. All sins. Well, if if unbelief is a sin, shouldn't that be one of the sins that he died for? So if he died for all sins, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto that, or he didn't. And if he did, then why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? Basically, if 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 unbelief is a sin and Christ died for all sins, then that unbelief is a sin that should have been atoned for. That's one of the sins that Christ underwent punishment for. If Christ didn't die for the sins of unbelief, then he didn't die for all their sins. So you don't have Christ dying for all the sins. And what's more clear in scripture that Christ died for all sin or they died for all the sins of all men? It's clear that he died for all the sins that he intended to die for. So you're either based, and and then what happens at that point is if he didn't die for the sin of unbelief, we all have unbelief. We all have doubt. We all have moments. I mean, that's what sin is. We don't believe the gospel as we should. We all have periods of unbelief. None of our unbelief is, is atoned for then. So you either have limited atonement or you're stuck with either universal salvation or universal reprobation. That's the logical consequence. And and this seems an airtight argument. I haven't really heard a responsible, logical answer to the challenge that John Owen puts. Now, I know it's a complex argument, so I'll put these, I'll try to put this in the show notes so you can kind of see the flow of it. But I think quite easily Owen showed that Jesus either died for the elect only or else we run into the equally unacceptable conclusions that either all are saved or none are saved. You either accept limited atonement or you accept the really anathema positions that all are saved or none are saved. I, I'm not sure how to escape that. Now, again, we looked last time at the, the, the intent of the atonement. So what, what, what was God's purpose in sending Christ to die on the cross? Right? We, looked at this, we looked at this last time. But we're going we're gonna to kind of look at it again. It's going to be a little bit more superficial than last time because last time we spent an entire episode just looking at the intent. But I wanted to draw out a few more things. All right, so this is going to be necessarily brief, uh, but, I, but I do want to make a couple points. First, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God requires that whatever God decrees or determines to occur will without fail come to pass, and no one will by disobedience or sin be able to frustrate these plans. Right, and here I don't mean um, uh, conditional prophecies, for example. Right, there, there's for for those reform folk who are listening to this, I'm sure most of you have listened to uh, the lectures on prophecy by Pratt, which are excellent. Uh, by the way, if you have if you have iTunes, you should look up the lectures on prophecy by Pratt. They are fantastic. Right, there there is very clearly historical contingent realities that affect the outcome of prophecies in the Old Testament. That's not what I'm talking about. Here we are talking about the decrees of salvation uh, that God has sovereignly decreed will come about. Right. So if this, if this is the case, if God determined to atone 
for all men, all would be saved. If God so desired that he would atone for all men, if the intent was that Christ would accomplish atonement on the cross for all, pe for all people, then all would be saved. However, since all believe that only some are saved, right, in both Reformed and Arminian thought, pretty much anyone who's Orthodox, you, you, you know that there are some that are saved and some that are not, then this must be what God had decreed. Right? God had to have decreed that not all would be saved. And therefore, these can be the only ones whom God has determined to save. Right? If you're an Arminian, you have to say, well, God has still decreed He's still sovereign over reality. He still has made his declaration. He still created this specific world with this specific outcome, and it couldn't be different. Those who will be saved and those who will not. Now, in relation to this, we see the work of Christ that was, in fact, finished on the cross and does not await any further ratification of future faith to make what was only possible on the cross actual by faith, right? It's not, it's not instant mashed potatoes. It's not just add faith. Right? What we see is that our salvation was completed and accomplished according to the good and perfect plan of God by the names that were written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. And where did that happen? On Calvary. Our salvation was attained then. Right? The means by which it was applied to us in our, in our actual life, in, in, in this, this space-time contingent, the means that it was applied to us is faith. Right? But our salvation, your salvation specifically, my salvation specifically, was with Christ on the cross at Calvary. Our names specifically... Right. By the way, this this undermines that whole corporate election thing. Sorry, if you open the Book of Life, it doesn't say the church. No, it says your name. It says my name specifically. We are written in the Book of Life from before the foundations of the world. Now, in addition to this, to those who say that the atonement only made salvation possible and it's activated by just just adding faith, we have to we have to assert that the Bible clearly shows that not only was a salvation accomplished on the cross, but also all means to that salvation. Thus, Christ purchased not only our salvation, but our faith, our repentance, and all the other effects of the works of the Spirit at regeneration. The atonement secures the fulfillment of the requirements of salvation which we've already shown we are incapable of, as well as the salvation itself. We can look at some passages. Romans 2.4 is a good example. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Right? The kindness of God is the one that leads us to repentance. We don't think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience. He's the one that brings us to repentance. What about Galatians chapter 3? Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're not going to go into uh, crazy into the context here of Galatians. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And how do we receive the promise through faith? We receive it. But when were we redeemed? We were redeemed when Christ hung on the tree. That's when we were redeemed. Ephesians 1, 3-4 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. When were we chosen? Before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glory and grace which he freely bestowed upon us in his beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ things in heavens and things on earth in him also we have been preordained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose who works all things for the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so on and so forth. It's not just the redemption. It's the means of redemption. We were in Christ redeemed before the foundations. We were predestined to good works. We were preordained to good works. Right? The good work there is, is, is faith, is salvation. 2.8.4 By grace you have been saved through faith and not that not by yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God is the one that prepared our good works before us. Why? He put us on the path for those good works that we would walk them. But he prepared those good works beforehand. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What has been granted us for Christ's sake? Right? And I don't say that flippantly. It's in the text. What has been granted to us for Christ's sake? Not only that we believe but that we suffer. Not only that we believe what's been granted to us in Christ, that we believe. Our belief has been granted to us in Christ. 
Our faith, the exercise of our faith is granted to us in Christ. It's not something that, that comes from within us as a response. If we hold to the Arminian view of the atonement, then Christ did not secure our salvation for any in attempting to make it available to all. If, if we agree with, with Arminius, if we agree with the Arminians, if we agree with the Molinists, that Christ didn't actually secure the salvation for the elect, right? he didn't actually accomplish salvation, what he did was that he made it available that if we just add faith to all, that is a concept that is completely foreign to the historical victory of Christ found in the pages of Scripture, the victory of Christ that he accomplished on the cross. Accomplished on the cross. As we've seen, Scripture repeatedly qualifies who it is that Christ died for. Christ died for his sheep. He died for his church. He died for his people. He died for the elect. These are shown repeatedly to be the only ones who receive the blessing of the cross. All right, again, you can look at Matthew 1.21, Romans 8.32.35, and so on. We also saw that the intercession of Christ as high priest and his sacrifice are simply two aspects of the same work of the atonement. Why would Christ limit his intercession to those who would believe both in his time on earth and in his time to come, you can look at that in John 17, 9, and then again in Revelation, if in fact he would be sacrificing for all of humanity on the cross, why would he specifically limit his intercession if it was going to be for everybody? Right? We don't have an answer for that from the Armenians. Another major problem, and we talked about this last time, is that if you are an Arminian, if you're going to say that Christ died for all, for example, for the whole world, you're going to have the problem that God requires a double payment. Right? This was already addressed by Owen's argument, but if God did, in fact, die for the sins of the whole world, why is it that some people are cast into hell? If the debt has been paid, what else is left to pay and what punishment was held back when Christ quote, became a curse for us, end quote, to, quote, redeem us from the curse of the law, end quote, Galatians 3, 13. What was held back? What was left? Right, this, remember, this goes back to Owen. Did he die for all of the sins? Did he take on the burden of all the sins? Did he propitiate the wrath of God against all of our sins or just most of them? And if he died, if he redeemed, if he atoned for all sin, then how is it just on the part of God to require us to pay for our sins? Not, not in the same manner as the unfair objection to the previous doctrine of election, but because this is the only means to salvation that God himself has provided. And if on his own system of salvation requires double payment, then God would be breaking his own essence of justice. Right? God nowhere allows double payment. 
So why would God allow it for sins? And what would that mean for us? What would that mean for our assurance? What would that mean for our salvation? If we say, yeah, yeah, Christ died for all of the sins. Uh, he, he atoned for all of your sins. Um, but he might require double payment. Well, then it, was Christ's death sufficient enough? How do I know that, that I won't be required of double payment? How can, I, how, can I, how can I rest in my Savior if I don't know that God won't call me to the mat and I'm required to pay for my sins, even though Christ has bore them all away from me? At that point, even the Christian has to say that Christ isn't his actual Savior. He's his potential Savior because we don't know if I'm going to be required for double payment. God could turn around and say, sorry, I know Christ died for you and he atoned for all your sin, but yeah, I'm going to need you to pay up. Can you have any assurance of your salvation if that's the case? By turning Christ into a potential savior for all the world, you turn him literally into a potential savior for all the world, including the church, including Christians. He's not my actual savior anymore. He's just my potential savior, even after I place my trust. Because... I still might be required to pay double payment. I don't know. That's got to be, that, that's so unbiblical. No, Christ is our actual Savior. He accomplished our salvation on the cross. Now, what are some of the common objections? Right, some of the common ones are <clears throat> that, that there are verses that state that Christ died for the whole world, for all men, and, and that there are some for whom Christ died that failed to obtain salvation. Now, how do we respond to these? Okay, this answer is going to take some work. So, so uh, get ready, sit down, hope you have your uh, cup of coffee, cup of tea, cup of joe, whatever it is that you're drinking. Um, first, we have to state that when Christ died for the world, right, that little proposition for, several options can be meant in various passages uh, and it may be employed differently. For can have the meaning of in the place of, which would uphold the idea that the atonement was a penal substitution where Christ took on the punishment that was due to us. He, he took the place of the elect on the cross. And in this manner, this is how Christ died for the church, for his sheep, for the elect. He died for us in our place. We can also say that for can mean to or toward um, that, 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 that in Christ die, uh, that, that Christ died for the purpose of offering salvation to all. We, we will address this possibility of giving a genuine gospel presentation under the doctrine later. Uh, but here let's be satisfied to understand that this is a possible rendering of four, right? It's in the dative case in the Greek. Now let us also look at the meaning of the whole world. Right? There are some passages, John uh, 2, 2, for example, uh, that says that Christ was a propitiation for the whole world. We saw the problem with this. Uh, we'll look at it again. But this, again, can have a couple meanings. First, it can mean the whole of creation. Right? This would encompass more than the world of humanity. This manner uh, of speaking can also be upheld by those of us who hold the doctrine of particular redemption. Right, because this would not be a type of atonement or redemption in the salvific sense, but rather in an eschatological sense. Right, it's entirely biblical to see that the resurrection of, of both the godly and the wicked, as well as creation itself in the new heavens and the new earth, found in the resurrection of Christ. 
right? It's, it's, the, it's the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ that is going to uh, bring regeneration, so to speak, to the whole world. But we would be really hard-pressed to call this atonement for trees, for example. Right? Trees have never sinned, and yet they will be redeemed. They will be restored. They will be renewed in the last days. Right? The, 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 the heavens, the creation groans right now and it waits for its recreation at the coming of the Son, uh, Jesus Christ. It's in the same manner that common grace is also dispensed on the cross to all of creation to uphold and sustain it until the return of Christ. Yet none of this would require us to say that Christ died as an atonement for all of the sins of all humanity. We must, however, state honestly that the death of Christ, while only atoning for the elect, was multifaceted in its purposes for all of creation. Now, the whole world in the New Testament commonly means something like all the nations. Right? A prime example of this would be Romans 11.12. Let's go to Romans 11.12, uh, where it says... I say then, they did not stumble, so as to fall did they, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, this is from the NASB, it says, to the Gentiles. Some translations are going to say the whole world. That salvation has come to the whole world. This can have several meanings. First, it can mean the whole of creation. But here, the whole world can't possibly mean all people since it explicitly excludes Israel. <laughs> right? The, the, it, it's saying that, that, that uh, Israel was stumbled so that salvation can come to the world. Here, the world is used in the New Testament in this passage to draw attention to the inclusivity of the gospel, to the vast array of the Gentile nations, as opposed to the particularism of the Old Testament election of Israel. Right? That's the good news. It's no longer Israel. It's true Israel, but it's the Gentiles grafted in. The message goes out to all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people. We see this meaning in passages such as Matthew 24, 14, Mark 16, 16, Romans 1, 5, 10, 18, as well as some of the other most likely passages like John 1, 29, John 6, 33, and 51, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, 1 John 2, 2, and so forth. Therefore, when Christ died for the whole world in that sense, he died for the salvation of the elect from all the nations. This is not all without exclusion. This is all without national distinction. And that distinction makes a difference. Next, there's the idea of all men that's mentioned. This again is largely determined by the semantic uh, meaning of all. If we read it as all without exception, that is that it includes every human of all time, then we're again stuck with the conclusion that either all are ultimately saved or none are saved. Right? We get stuck back in the John Owen uh, argument. But if we read it as all without national distinction, then we run into no such problem. That is, if we read all men to mean all kinds of men without distinction, that is, God does not favor one nationality over another, that, that the gospel goes not just to Israel, but, but to all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues, 
Then we wind up again with a New Testament concept that God has elected some to be saved from all nations, tribes, and tongues, a fact heavily attested to in Scripture. Now, we also see that in many of the passages that all men can simply refer to all the men in a certain subgroup that the writer is dealing with. Uh, we can see this clearly uh, in Romans 5.18 and 1 Corinthians 15.22, where all men can only mean those who are saved. Right? Uh, so we looked at the Romans 5 passages earlier. Let's, let's turn this time to 1 Corinthians 15.22. Dealing with, with with the resurrection, 1522, uh, starting back at verse 21, talking about the resurrection. For since by one man, since by a man came death, by a man came uh, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all are made alive. Now, some are going to say, look, all people died in Adam. So the analogy is actually all people. But then you're stuck. Then you're stuck. Are all made alive in Christ? Well, no. The problem is that all under the covenant headship of Adam died. All under the covenant headship of Christ are made alive. Right? Those are the category. The category that the author has been dealing with. If we take it to mean all men universally... We make Paul say so much more than he intends to in those passages. We make Paul a universalist. Finally, we have the passages that seem to suggest that Christ die, uh, did in fact die for some who would not actually obtain salvation. Now, some of these are more easily explained than others. Let's look at uh, Romans 14, uh, 15 as an example of run. Romans 14, 15. Romans 14, 15 says... For if because of uh, food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Right here talking about the weaker brother. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Right. Well, well, there isn't Paul saying that you could uh, cause someone who, who, who Christ died uh, to lose their salvation. Is that what he's saying? What about 1 Corinthians 8:11? 1 Corinthians 8:11, for though you uh, for though your knowledge for through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Ruined. Here uh, the Christian Pharisee, so to speak, is shown to cause the weaker brother to stumble to destruction. Now, here However, Romans 14.4 shows that this is not an actual possibility, but that God will uphold them even if they stumble. The passages uh, are clearly uh, what, what uh, G.T. Shedd calls a supposition for the sake of argument of something that does not and cannot happen, end quote. Right. It, it, it's a message to the stronger brother saying, do not, do not cause your, your brother to stumble. Do not cause the one that Christ has died to stumble. Right. It's Christ that upholds them, but the idea is that we should be living in Christian love and Christian charity and Christian grace towards each other. The message is more for us than the ontological status of the one uh, for whom Christ died. This is a common rhetorical device used to prove a point. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a common thing in rhetoric, and it's employed frequently throughout Scripture, most commonly in Paul, but we also find it in Hebrews 6 in regards to the possibility of losing salvation, something that's impossible, 
but shown to prove a point. When we find passages such as 2 Peter 2.1 and Hebrews 10.29 where false teachers seem to lose their salvation, uh, a common rhetorical device is at work. Right, 2 Peter 2.1 and Hebrews 10.29, we're not going to go to those passages, but it's talking about false teachers, and it's basically saying, look, those are the false teachers. They've fallen away from, from faith. They've, they've, they've tasted, uh, but now they've fallen away. Well, what's happening? Right? They're being judged according to their assumed professions without making any judgment on whether or not those professions uh, is correct or not. Right? They're saying, look, these people say they're saved, Right? It's clear it's clear that these false teachers you know want to profess to be saved, but they're not in fact genuine believers. They're heretics like those who found commonly denounced in Second Peter, the epistles of John and Jude. They're very clearly heretics. They're very clearly leading the church astray. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are the ones who are going to come and say, uh, you know, Jesus, we, we drove out demons in your name. And Jesus is going to say, away from me. I never knew you. Not I knew you once, once and then you fell away. I never knew you. But the, the rhetoric is just they're being based on their own profession. You know that group who used to call themselves Christian? Well, they're not. Right? It's not based on their actual state of salvation. Doesn't doesn't uh, another objection? Doesn't Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen through nineteen teach that God was reconciling the world to Himself? Let's look at Second Corinthians five. Second Corinthians five seventeen to nineteen says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ." and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now remember, at this time, Paul and the apostles are expanding the promises of God and the redemption from Israel out to the Gentiles. This passage doesn't mean that the whole world, as in every single person, has been reconciled. Right? Again, otherwise you're going to have to hold to some type of universalism or else accuse God of demanding double payment for anyone who isn't saved. An all-sufficient payment from Christ, but then a demand for us to also pay our own debt. Rather, this verse is referring to the fact that God has sheep from other flocks than Israel, just as Matthew says Jesus said. That salvation is not just for the Jews. Paul is quite right when he states that God is reconciling the world, all peoples, not all people, to himself, because he's referring to Jews, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, Scythians, so forth. What's another objection? Well, if you hold to limited atonement, right? If, if, if you don't believe that Christ, in fact, died for everyone, then what's the point of evangelism, right? Doesn't that just make evangelism impossible? Because shouldn't you just be preaching to the elect, right? This is a really common objection to Calvinism, and, it, and, it, and it's kind of a straw man. It's one of the ones that actually kind of irritates me, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm being honest, because it's so disingenuous. It, it, it reveals such a lack of understanding of Calvinism. First, 
we have to always assert that the gospel proclamation is the main function of the church to all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. No one should presume to know who the elect are from these group and therefore limit their evangelistic efforts to the local body. No, we don't, we don't know who the elect are. We don't know Who's going to respond in faith? So we, we share the gospel indiscriminately to all people. We plant the seed. We scatter it as far and as wide and as deep as we possibly can. But we shouldn't assume that evangelism is, is more than what it's shown to be in Scripture. Right? It's not a universal offer of salvation. I know that's going to cut countercultural to to our to our American concepts of, of, of evangelism. It's not the, the the if you look through the the sermons of the preaching of the gospel uh, through Acts, the offer of the gospel is that Christ died for those who would believe. The offer of salvation is to whomever believes. Our universal offer of the gospel, and our gospel is a universal offer, is always conditioned, though implicitly, that only the elect will receive it by faith. We have to remember that the offer of salvation to all who we encounter does not consist of a declaration that Christ died for all sins of all people. What is the gospel message? The gospel message is, an, is, is three things. It's an exposition of the atoning work of Christ in regards to sin and sufficient for the salvation of all who believe. Christ died for the sins of all who believe. Repent and believe. For God so loved the world that Jesus died for those whom believes, to whomever believes. It's always implicit that it's to whomever believes, whosoever believeth. Secondly, it's a description of the nature of faith and repentance that Christ requires. If you believe in the message of the gospel, the proper response is faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. And finally, it is a declaration of salvation that will be given to all those who do repent and believe. It is the words of assurance that follow. First, you are sinful. Christ died for sins and is a sufficient salvation for all who would believe. What is the proper response to this message? That you have faith and re repentance and you believe. What happens if you repent and have faith and believe? That salvation will be replied to you. That's the gospel message. It's not, hey, Christ died for all sins of all humanity. Right? That's universalism. It's not the duty of the preacher to harmonize the secret and the revealed will of God. The revealed will, will is that all are morally obligated to believe. And this is a righteous act and God's universal law is only on what is good and righteous. And therefore we are responsible for this. Knowing, however, that God will achieve his secret will of who will believe and who will not. Now, for those of you who are like, secret and revealed will, what is that? That draws from Deuteronomy uh, 3131 that says uh, the, the, that there are uh, the things that are made plain, uh, but the secret things belong to the Lord. 
Dr. Shedd says, quote, God may properly call upon the non-elect to do a thing that God delights in simply because he delights in it. The divine desire is not altered by the divine decree of preterition. End quote. It's not, it's not altered by the divine decree of reprobation. Shedd says that in his Dogmatic Theology, page 484. The universal offer of salvation eliminates the excuse that the reprobate was not given the opportunity to believe. Therefore, it is the duty of the faithful preacher to eliminate every vestige of the excuse that he is given the opportunity to. We preach to all people, all tongues, all tribes, all nations, that Christ is the sufficient sacrifice and atonement for salvation for all who would believe. If we hear the message and we repent and respond in faith, that salvation is guaranteed to us. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. I just listened to um, a debate with Matt Slick uh, on the Bible Thumping Wingnut where, where he was talking with the Arminian and, 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 and the Arminian basically kept saying, well, well, well. That you know, if if you're right, if again they were talking about free will, but he's saying, look, if you're right, if if they couldn't believe, well, then that gives them the excuse against God, right? And Matthew Slick mentioned it, but I, I really wish he would have pressed the point home that look, that's the exact objection that Paul got in Romans nine, exact objection, right? Then how, then how are you to find fault? The, the, the person can then say, well, well, you know, how can I be blamed because I, because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe. It's the exact objection. You know, if you're preaching Calvinism right and you get the objection that that, that, that that will then give the unbeliever an excuse, you're preaching it right because that's the objection that Paul got. We'll talk about that next time for a, a, more, a longer period when we get into irresistible grace. But... The point is, is that the universal offer of salvation eliminates the excuse that they weren't given the opportunity. They weren't given the gospel message to respond to. They still reject it, but we offer it to everybody. Right? Not that salvation is for everybody, not that Jesus died for everybody. We offer the good news of the gospel to everybody. But the gospel is that Christ died for his church. Christ died for his people. And his people, his sheep, know his voice and respond with repentance and faith. And he protects them. Another objection comes, uh, it's kind of it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I, I, I hope it's tongue-in-cheek. I hope it's not sincere. Is that, that some people will come knocking on the door of salvation, but they'll be turned away because there's no redemption for them at the end. <laughs> now, this objection is, is pretty simple to respond to. Ba- basically, it's a red herring used to make the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement seem really unfair and uncold. Look at those mean Calvinists. They're going to say that, you know, that there's this really sincere person who really sincerely believes and, they, and they, they, they repent and they have faith, but if they aren't on the list, they don't get into the party. <laughs> well, what's the problem? We know that any who come to Jesus will not be turned away. Any who come to Christ will be accepted and saved. But what does Jesus say explicitly in John 6.37, 6.44, and 6.65? 
that the only ones who come to him are brought to him by the Father. The demographic of people who come to Christ apart from the sovereign, unconditional election of God and are turned away then is an empty category. It cannot happen. It does not happen. It never happens. Zero, not a zip. It will not occur. There's no one banging by their own free will on the salvation inn. Right? We have to remember that before regeneration, we are dead in our sins, and therefore we cannot come to God on our own. We do not come to God on our own. Therefore, this objection is simply a smoky cloud with no real substance meant to simply make an irrational tug at someone's sense of fair play. Right? They're supposed to hear it and be like, oh, those, those mean Calvinists. Oh, sorry. Sorry, that, that, that simply won't happen. All whom the Father brings to Jesus, he will keep. Now, one final objection uh, is that Christ, the, the, the Arminian is going to say, ironically, as, as we've seen, that they're going to say Christ's death was sufficient for all, right? Not just the elect. It was, it was, they're going to say it was effective for the elect, but it was sufficient for, for all. First, we've seen that, that you, you either are a universalist and that it's sufficient for all and, and uh, effective for all, or you're stuck saying it really wasn't efficient for sufficient for all. He really didn't die for all sins. He really wasn't the sufficient sacrifice. Either he didn't die for all sins, or God might demand double payment, in which case he wasn't the sufficient savior. So really, if you're an Arminian, ironically, you can't even say that Christ's death was sufficient for all unless you're a universalist. So there's that problem. The Calvinists can actually say that the, the, the death of Christ was sufficient for all and not just the elect. It was sufficient for all. Sufficiency is a completely different category. It's, this is just a false objection. First, even the staunchest Calvinist claims that the sufficiency of Christ was enough to cover the sins of the whole world. No one is arguing that the death of Christ was only sufficient for the elect. It's that it was only intended for the elect. Calvinists simply say that it was only designed for and carried out on behalf of the elect. Now, why is the death of Christ infinitely sufficient? Well, because the death of a perfect sacrifice is all that God has required to bring salvation to his people, regardless of the number. Notice that regardless of the population of Israel, there was only one required scapegoat. Well, I guess there's two if you're following the ceremony, but there was only one scapegoat on the Day of Atonement that took the ten sins of the people and carried them out into the wilderness. There was one. God didn't require a second one when Israel doubles in size. The sufficiency of the atonement is a question about the quality of the sacrifice and not the quantity of its recipients. So Christ was the perfect sacrifice. He would have been sufficient whether there was an there there was the elect or whether we were universalists. Christ is sufficient for all. But his only intention, his only intent, it's only designed for, only carried out on behalf of the elect. This is attested throughout the book of Hebrews. The priest had to make atonement for himself, and because of this, he had to make atonement year in and year out. Right? But now the sacrifice has come. Now the true priest has come. There's the true priest. He didn't need to make atonement for himself because he's the perfect priest. 
We don't need sacrifices year in and year out over and over again because he was the perfect true sacrifice. It was sufficient and efficient for all time. In the same way that the lamb was only efficient for Israel, and indeed, I mean, if we're, if we're being honest, only the remnant of Israel within Israel was redeemed, and not for all the nations, right? Did the Day of Atonement cover the Canaanites? No. It covered Israel within Israel. So too, the sacrifice of Christ is good only for the true Israel, the Israel of God, which is the church whom he purchased with his blood on the Calvary, on the cross. That's when it was accomplished. That's when you and I were atoned for. Just think of all the hymns that you know. We were with Christ on the cross. That's when we were atoned for. That's when the wrath of God was propitiated. That's when we were reconciled. That's when we were redeemed. That's when we, were, uh, we had our salvation accomplished for us. That's when we were saved on the cross. An actual atonement for God's people. Not a potential offer for all the world that ends up making Christ only a potential people, a savior, even for his own people. Some final thoughts here. Um, J.I. Packer says uh, in his introduction to John Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, which is um, one of the best books. Everyone should read it. Uh, and, and by the way, the J.I. Packer is basically worth the cost of the book. Packer says, and this is a longer quote, quote, Now, here are two coherent interpretations of the biblical gospel, which stand in evident opposition to each other. The difference between them is not primarily one of emphasis, but of content. One proclaims a God who saves. The other speaks of a God who enables man to save himself. One view presents the three great acts of the Holy Trinity for the recovering of the lost mankind, election by the Father, redemption by the Son, calling by the Spirit, as directed toward the same persons and as securing their salvation infallibly. The other view gives each act a different reference, the objects of redemption being all mankind, of calling those who hear the gospel, and of election those hearers who respond, and denies that any man's salvation is secured by any of them. The two theologies thus conceive the plan of salvation in quite different terms. One makes salvation depend on the work of God, the other on the work of man. One regards faith as a part of God's gift of salvation, the other as man's own contribution to salvation. One gives all the glory of saving believers to God, the other divides the praise between God, who, so to speak, built the machinery of salvation, and man, who by believing, operated it. End quote. R.C. Sproul quotes, or states in Grace Unknown on page 167, quote, if faith is necessary to the atonement, then Christ's work was indeed a mere potentiality. In itself, it saves no one. It merely makes salvation possible. Theoretically, we must ask the obvious question, what would have happened to the work of Christ if nobody believed? That had to be a theoretical possibility. In this case, Christ would have died in vain. 
He would have been a potential savior of all, but an actual savior of none. This is why we get to the doctrine of the atonement. Like I said at the beginning, sometimes we talk about this in terms uh, of free will and the bondage of the will and, 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 and uh, compatibilistic will and determinism. And we start getting to all these abstract concepts. Remember where Calvin said, look, that, that's, that's a mire that you might not want to get into. If we come at this question through the atonement, ironically, through, through one of the doctrines that, that's, that's usually the one that's rejected the most, seems to be the most supported by scripture that Christ was our actual savior who actually accomplished the work of salvation, of atonement, of propitiation, of reconciliation, of redemption on the cross. And to deny it is either universal salvation or universal reprobation or the continual fear of death even for the believer who might require be required of double payment by God. That's a scary thought. There goes assurance. Remember the hymn that I that I that I ended with last time. It ends the the the, the last couple verse the last couple stanzas. Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid, whatever thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled by thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured, the whole of wrath divine, payment God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest, the merits of thy great high priest, speak peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. That, that, that's our assurance, Christian. That's our assurance. Christ chose us from before the foundations of the world. Chose us by name, not just chose corporately the church. Our name was written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundations of the world. Those whom he pre ordained those whom those whom he foreknew he predestined those whom he predestined he justified he atoned for we are his sheep we are his church we are the elect we are the ones whom Christ died for does that make us self righteous <laughs> not at all i'm not fantastic doesn't make me any more righteous than anyone else. Doesn't, I'm, I'm not more deserving. I'm not better. In fact, if you understand Calvinism, I need redemption more than anyone else. I can't, I'm not better. I'm not self-righteous. It's all entirely a work of God. It has nothing to do with my own merit. It has nothing to do with my faith. Because even my faith is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Christ was your actual Savior. That's the gospel message. He died for sins. And that's a good news to those who believe. And if you believe, repent and have faith and salvation will be yours.
Next time, we will begin, we'll continue looking at Calvinism. We'll look at, at the doctrine called irresistible grace. Now that we have seen that we have been elected, that we have been atoned for, how is that atonement applied to me personally by the Holy Spirit? We will look at that next time under irresistible grace. Thank you again for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to reach out to us at, by email at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or visit the Facebook page, uh, the Freed Thinker Podcast Facebook group. Thank you again for joining us. Good night and God bless.